0: Welcome to 10 Seconds to Air, I'm Alita Guillen. I start every podcast asking my guests the same question, what goes through your mind 10 seconds before air? My guests love the question because it is a truth-teller. It's a moment when our mindset, our training, all our life experiences, good and bad, comes into play, and when we must perform at our very best. How we execute that moment is personal and defines our own communication style. Mastering the art of communication leads to new and exciting adventures. It extends our reach and impact on others, many times adding purpose and meaning to our life and allowing for deeper connections. So what does that have have to do with today's guest exactly? Well, listen up. My guest today is renowned orthopedic surgeon Dr. Robert Clapper. As you are about to hear or may already know, he connects deeply with his patients and public through his own communication style. Dr. Clapper is one of a kind, a pioneer of minimally intrusive surgical techniques and tools that have changed the lives of millions of people. He is the director of the Joint Replacement Program at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles and has replaced thousands of knees and hips, including many of famous athletes and celebrities. But Dr. Clapper's passions and style go beyond the operating room. He is a marble sculptor, an avid surfer, and for 12 years he hosted the ESPN radio show The Weekend Warrior, giving advice to callers about their aches and pains. Dr. Clapper's stories and advice, medical or otherwise, are thought-provoking, inspirational, and entertaining. He has developed and mastered... An authentic and powerful communication style full of humor and common sense and perfectly anchored by his own life experiences. He joins me now in person to have a conversation about his life, what to do and not to do to avoid surgery, and how the art of communicating has served him well. We pick up the conversation talking about his parents, a topic he often shared with listeners on his radio show. Be patient. We do get to the 10 seconds to air question, but we broke format because Dr. Clapper was mid-story. And as you are about to hear, you just don't want to interrupt him. Here now is my in-person conversation with Dr. Robert Clapper.
1: But a lot of times I would talk about my dad, the carpenter. Yeah. And how he really he fought in World War II worked in the post office, but he was a carpenter. And we always felt that he was a failure. And it bothered me so much because I love my father. And it was interesting. My mother, when I was probably 11, 12 years old, said to me, so Mr. Big Shot, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I want to be a carpenter just like him, a rare Jewish carpenter. The last Jewish carpenter was named Jesus. I said, I want to be like him, build things, work with my hands. She looked at me. My mom was a nurse. Robbie, Do me a favor. He can't even make a living. He is a failure. He can't do anything. I got to go to work to support the family. Robbie, do me a favor. First, you should be a doctor. Then you can do whatever you want. And so I love my parents. I respected the hard work and what they did. And there were other reasons why I went to medical school. But that was a big one. I mean, my mother felt that her life was such a struggle. So the great joy, if she wants to have a son that's a doctor, okay. And then I go to medical school. I don't, I don't know from nothing. I just know my mom's a nurse. Well, I went to school in New York, at Columbia, for college and for medical school. So here I am in medical school at Columbia, and they did something really great. The very first year, and you don't know nothing, they have a cadaver. And there's five people around a body, your classmates, and you start at the top. You do the dissections of the, the head and neck. Well, what did Columbia do? They made the head of ENT surgery come to the cadaver. And teach you, we make our incisions this way, not this way, because the recurrent laryngeal nerve wraps around the thyroid. So when we do thyroid surgery, we have to protect the nerve to the voice box. And this is why. Like, they made relevance to the dissection. It was awesome. Yeah. Okay? And you don't know anything because you're a first-year student doing the section. Well, the next week, now you're in the chest as you work your way down the body. Yeah. The heart surgeons come in. We cut the sternum this way to get to the heart. You know, all this. It was amazing. But... I'm not necessarily going to be a brain surgeon, head and neck surgeon, but it was all fascinating to me. And I'll never forget this. Six weeks into it, we've gone through the belly, general surgeons, vascular surgeons. Six weeks into it, we're at the pelvis. Only this lecture was in the big lecture hall, not at the cadaver.
0: Why why is that? Why is that?
1: Because he was an egomaniac, the chief (laughs) of orthopedic surgery frank stinchfield who brought hip replacements to the united states from england i'm sitting there in this with all my 150 classmates at columbia in this big amphitheater and he's way down below and the guy comes in with his white coat and he goes gloria please come this way this is gloria sanchez she's wearing a mini dress stiletto heels this amazingly attractive puerto rican lady He takes her hand and she does like a spin with her mini dress and her stiletto heels. And they do a little salsa dancing on top. I'm going, what the hell is going on? (laughs) He puts up a slide. He goes, Gloria was born without a hip. It was dislocated since birth. She had no ball. She had no socket. And I'm like going, whoa. So I used a saw to cut the femoral neck and head off. But I saved it and I drilled into it with a drill. And then I used screws and bolted and I made a roof out of a flat wall of her pelvis so that I could put the socket the acetabular component in and I created a hip Gloria could not walk look at her now wow and I'm sitting there going saw drill hammer yeah. oh my god yeah. I could be a carpenter in the body I yeah. never knew this it was like amazing I looked at a guy to my left I go this is a problem. The whole class. Everybody's going to want to do this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy looks at me and goes, no, I don't want to do this. I want to <laughs> be a pediatrician. I go, you're crazy. Okay, I look to the guy to my <laughs> right. I go, oh, my God. The whole class is going to want to do this. This is crazy. He goes, I don't want to do that. I go, why? He goes, because I want to be a psychiatrist. I go, you're really crazy. Yeah. And I never realized it was as though Cupid flew into the room, took out his bone, and shot me in the chest. Yeah. And when you go to medical school, particularly the military aspect of surgeons, you know, it's a, it's abusive, it's rookie, it's hazing, it's, I should write a book one day of what it's really like to be trained in this country as a surgeon, probably all over the world, militaristic, but to be, and again, I'm naive, I don't know how this whole, my father's not a doctor, I don't know how this works. But this is how it works when you start your clinical rotations, like general surgery, your third year medical school, particularly in these county hospitals, which is where I was at. There you are with your chief resident, the attending you can't find. The person needs an appendectomy, let's say, because they have belly pain in the middle of the night, whatever. And there you are as the medical student. So, Clapper, the chief resident, the big shot, says, what are you going to do? The correct answer is, I'm not sure yet. Okay, here, here's the scalpel. You can do the appendectomy, and I'll take you through it. What I would say, because I was naive, okay, Clapper, as they're about to give me the scalpel to do, as a third-year medical, the appendectomy on this godforsaken person, they would say, Clapper, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to do orthopedic surgery. Well, then I'm not giving the scalpel to do this appendectomy. And I would go, I don't care. I don't want to do your appendectomy. (laughs) I only want to do orthopedic surgery. (laughs) Like, I was tunnel vision. Wow. And it would be a problem because you're supposed to be, you know, learning all these different other fields. Right. Uh, I could care less. I, from that moment that that lecture occurred, that's all I wanted. I realized with that Cupid's arrow in my chest, this is an unbelievable opportunity to combine my carpentry with my mother, the nurse. Yeah. And... That story is over 40 years old.
0: But even before that, when you were an undergrad, you were not a chemistry major. You were not a biology major. You were art history. Yeah. I mean, you're so unconventional at every turn. Yes. What got you into art history?
1: So I'm going to give you the long story because this is your podcast. (laughs) Because we got time. Because we got time. So my father worked at least 16 hours a day. He would come home for a half an hour to have dinner and then go back to the post office. So he had to spank me and kiss me all in the same meal, right? Because of whatever, I, you know, set something on fire in the backyard. So I was right. in trouble for that. Right. But he also hadn't seen me. So he had to spank me and then kiss me all at the same time. This was my <laughs> life with my with my father, right? But the, when once I got to be seven years old, eight years old, I mean, I'm strong, not because I went to the gym. I would schlep my father's tools into the homes of the jobs he was doing as a carpenter for the other eight hours. Eight hours in the post office, eight hours as a carpenter. And we lived in the poor section of town. And we struggled to even be in that lower middle class neighborhood in Far Rockaway. But the rich people lived in the five towns, Lawrence, Woodmere, Hewlett Harbor, And my father, if he was lucky, got to redo the basement or do the roof or redo the kitchen in the rich people's houses. So from a really short time in my life, I mean, beginning of my life, I should say, I would be on a Saturday carrying the wooden crate boxes where his saw and his drill out of the truck into the rich people's houses. And when I would walk in as a 10-year-old, he would look at me and say, and Robbie." Don't touch anything in this house. Don't break anything in this house because a doctor lives here. A lawyer lives here. Or this, one, or that. And so his um, feelings, because he never uh, went to college, you know, he grew up during the Depression. Fought, he was born in 1915. So he, I, he, they had me later in life, in their lives. I was kind of, they had three daughters. They had a son who died and I was kind of like the rebound that happened. So I... In my mind I had to actually kill someone to be born because this poor kid didn't live to pass ten months, so they had me uh, on the reef. So this was in my head. Why did he die? How does the body work? So I always really was fascinated by medicine subconsciously because of that. But anyway, don't touch anything here. Or die, you yeah, know. Yeah. We're the B team. Yeah. We're the B team. they the A we work for the A team. Okay. Yeah. This is his mentality. Yeah. Because of inferiority complex of not having a full education, even though he was he would do the New York Times crossword puzzle in pen, but that's all another story. <laughs> wow. So that's how we grew up with a beating. Okay? 1968, Mexico City Olympics. We have a black and white TV with the rabbit ears. Yeah, I remember those. We lived across the street from Jamaica Bay. Mm-hmm. And my only way, because I'm, what I'm not telling you is the fights my parents would have because money was always missing. Mm-hmm. And you're a failure. You can't do this. How'd you lose all this money? Whatever. It was really awful. So to escape, I would go across the street. And my mother made the mistake of reading me Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn as a young kid because I wasn't reading. She thought I was, you know, going to be a real problem in terms of education. And I remember listening to that story, going Huck Finn, the Mississippi River with a raft, a whole bit. So I would go to the bay and I would build, and this led to ultimately getting a rowboat. And I would be out on Jamaica Bay in the traffic of the big barges near JFK Airport, nearly getting killed many times. That's all another bunch of stories. Where were
0: you going? What were you? What, I were, was
1: just rowing and okay. fishing and rowing by myself to get out this, of the house, by, just to get out of the house. Yeah. But I learned to fall in love with rowing. Mm. So it's in the 1968 Olympics. Remember the scene of Tom Cruise with the socks and risky business and yeah, he goes sliding? Yeah, yeah. Okay. My father's watching the 68 Olympics, track and field, gymnastics, when all of a sudden on this, the black and white TV is the crew team, the rowers. Yeah. I stopped in my socks like Tom Cruise and I went <laughs> sliding. And as I'm sliding, <laughs> my, I, I blurt out, oh, my God. Rowing in the Olympics. I'd love to do that. Yeah. My father turned. Again, I love my father. He turned. He said, I'm sorry, Robbie, you can't. I said, Why? He said, Because the only people who do that go to Ivy League schools. And no one from this neighborhood goes to Ivy League schools. So you can't do it. And then he quietly turned his head and he kept watching the Olympics. And I remember, like it was yesterday. I'm 66 years old in a few weeks, being that 11-year-old kid going, it's enough. I'm tired of being the B team. I can't touch anything, do anything. We work for them. I'm not doing this anymore. I have no idea what an Ivy League school is. right? But in my mind, I'm going to go to one of these schools so you can stop thinking you're the B team. You may think you're the B team, but you're going to know that you had a son Who's not the B team? And I remember saying this to yeah, myself. Yeah, I went wow. to the library. There's no internet. This is 1968. Yeah, and you're 11. And I'm 11. What's an Ivy League school? Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Penn, mm-hmm. Cornell, Dartmouth, <coughs> Brown. You know, was like eight of them, whatever. And I go to the library, innocent, like with this, you know, notepad. I get the address of these schools. I look up the crew coach of these schools.
0: This is at 11? You're doing this on your 11 This is on I'm
1: thinking at 11. But yeah. I guess whatever you start to apply to when you're 16 okay, or whatever okay. it is. as so you get older. But okay. I was on the swimming team because my high school had a swimming team. We, obviously, we didn't have a crew team. And it was an overcrowded New York City high school. For, there were 1,200 kids in my class. Not in the school, just in my class. Wow. It was insane. But they had a swimming team, so at least I did
0: that. Okay, so you're looking up so, the crew coaches. I'm looking up the
1: crew coaches, Frank Smith, University of Pennsylvania, or, you know, this one at, you know, Princeton or whatever. And I sit down at my Smith Corona typewriter, and I write an innocent letter. And I did okay on the SATs. I was number 19 out of 12. I wasn't the valedictorian, but I think in my high school, number 20 just discovered fire, a Neanderthal. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it was competition, not that great, but I was number <laughs> you were 19. 19. Yeah, okay. I was number 19, but... <laughs> But I, and I did okay on the SATs I didn't get perfect scores. I am still not getting into an Ivy League school okay and I know this. So I sit down and I write a letter, Dear Frank Smith, University of Pennsylvania or Yale University. I am uh, a senior or junior at uh, Farrahqua High School I'm on swing. but my real passion is rowing. And I'm curious, what time do you get up to run? How do you train? Bah, bah, bah. Because my dream one day would be to row for you, Stanley Steamer at Princeton University.
0: Yeah. And wow. I send
1: off this innocent letter yeah. with my FACACTA application to colleges, which of which I have to pay for the application. There's no money in my house. Yeah, yeah. I'm working in the Catskill Mountains as a waiter and a busboy and a lifeguard. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. But I put that letter... In each of those applications, and there I am at the kitchen table one day, and I said to my father, "Dad, oh, so you can imagine, the application now goes in where you're in the uh, the uh, the office, the admissions office of Yale. Yeah, yeah. You, oh, so wait, so uh, so I sent off the letter. I get letters back from the coaches. I remember I remember seeing the mailman. There it was, Princeton University, the orange and black." With raised lettering on the return on the envelope, mm-hmm. Yale University blue and uh, on the out It was and the and the mailman gave me this. I'm going, oh my god! I open it up. Dear Robert, I think it's fantastic that you row. This is my passion too. We get up at five in the morning. We run five miles. I hope someday your dream does come true. Wow. where You can row here at the University of Pennsylvania. Wow. I got these letters, so I remember. Sitting at the kitchen table with my father um, saying, hey, dad. So I have an interview at Yale and one at Princeton. This one's in Connecticut. This one. Should I take a bus? I can't drive. We don't have a car. Should I take a bus or should I take the train from the train station to both? I mean, what do you think I should do? My father looks at me, goes, Robbie, this is not supposed to be happening. I have no idea how you did this. Right where the, the admissions office is opening up a Far Rockaway high school application, ready to throw it in the denied reject box. But as they open it, there's a, there's stationery from Yale University, from Columbia University, from their crew coach. That, and I never lied. But if I didn't tell you, or you didn't know that I wrote the first letter, you would think, admissions office, our crew coach wrote this guy a letter. They must be recruiting him. Yeah. So, so I'm sitting there, and he looks at me and goes, this is not supposed to be happening. We're the B team. Robbie, you're on your own. You're going to have to figure this one out yourself, the, the bus, the train. And I remember saying, okay, and he, and he said to me, I love you very much, Robbie, but I can't help you with this. This is beyond my bandwidth. And I remember saying to myself, okay, as long as I have a dad that loves me, I know I'm ahead of everybody else or in the, the A team. And there I went. So let me just entertain you with one story. I'm at Princeton University, okay? This school is so amazing that they don't just have fraternities. You know what they're called there? What? Eating clubs. (laughs) These characters not only go to college and stay in a brownstone on the campus, but they bring their own chef. This is like, are you out of your mind? So there I am with my father's voice in my head on like a Friday night, a recruitment weekend. So you're in a
0: recruiting trip. This is a recruiting trip. I'm
1: up, yeah, at Princeton University. I can tell you other campuses as well. But there I am with this giant King Arthur's Court table with the coach and the crew team and two other recruits. There are three this weekend.
0: So they haven't accepted you yet. No, this is the recruiting recruiting visit. And
1: I'm sitting there and the coach bangs the glass... Okay, gentlemen. I just want to introduce you to uh, three recruits we have visiting us uh, this weekend. First, and I kid you, I'm not making this. I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. First, we have Biff Jones from uh, Phillips Andover Academy. This is six foot, five inch. I sculpted marble, okay? This guy is made from Carrara marble, okay? His shoulders are out here. His way. He's six foot five. He stands up. Uh, he looks around. Of course, he looks like every Nazi, okay, you know, with the blonde Boy. hair and the blue eyes. Um, and I'm, like, looking around going, and he looks at everybody, thanks, thanks, guys, for having me. Uh, okay, uh, Biff Jones, and he sits down. Uh, and our second recruit, I, I kid you not, this one was named Biff. This other guy, his name was Chip, okay? We have <laughs> Chip Stevens. He's from, what does it called? Chote Choate. Academy. Okay, yep. he stands. He's, like, 6'4". Right. The muscles are popping out of his shirt. And he looks at her. thanks, guys. Really nice to be you. And he sits down. And he goes, and our final recruit, he says, the coach, uh, Robbie Clapper from Far Rockaway High School.
0: <laughs> As I'm standing up,
1: I'm looking around going, my father's right. I'm not supposed to be <laughs> yeah, This
0: is ridiculous. Okay? And I'm not 6'6". Right.
1: And so guess what? I kissed the mailman because I got into Yale, Penn, Columbia. And when I got into Columbia... I got a really fat letter and this letter said, you not only have been accepted, we don't have full scholarships or whatever, right. but because of your ac- uh, your financial situation,
0: yep.
1: Yep. we've called through and his name was Maurice Sykes, who was a hedge fund guy in the time it was rare on Wall Street. He had a son who died who was pre-med. He was on the 1929 crew team that won the Ivy League championship. And he picked you out of the incoming students and you will be what's known as a psych scholar. It wasn't a full scholarship, but right, I got right. help. And I said, this is unbelievable because I need the help. Wow. Oh, my God. And so I went to Columbia. The the long answer to your question is, OK, so I didn't go to Penn. I didn't go to you. I went to Columbia. If you go to the other schools, There's no core curriculum. Columbia, unique in the Ivy League and unique in this country, they don't care whether you're going to be a physics major, English major, whatever you're going to do with your life. Half your credits to graduate have to be in philosophy, humanities, music and uh, humanities, art history. Okay? I don't want to study art.
0: I don't want I never want to even go to a museum. So at this point, you still are... You think you're pre med. You're going
1: going to to be a doctor. Which was awful because I now am at Columbia as a freshman (laughs) where all these kids, Bronx School of Science, Stuyvesant, let alone the prep schools that got in, they have AP chemistry. So, what did these bums do? They took AP chemistry in their fancy high schools, didn't take the credit, and then were in my class where the professor could barely (laughs) speak English. I didn't understand what was going on. But they could get an A because they repeated the year. I have no idea what's going on. Right, right. This is why I couldn't wait to take organic chemistry because I knew you ain't taking organic chemistry in high school, at least then. Now, who knows what happens now? Right. At least now it will be all even. Right, level playing field. Level playing field. Level playing field. So I made it through rowing on the crew team my freshman year, which was amazing. And bringing my parents to the crew race at Yale was a whole other story that if you have more time, I'll tell you. But anyway, it was amazing. But I made it. I didn't get A's, but I got B's, which meant I could keep my scholarship. So everybody else is taking their test.
0: Yeah.
1: All I'm thinking is if I don't get a B, they're going to take the money away and I have to drop out. Yeah. So talk about pressure. Yeah. But I made it. I got all B's my freshman year. Now I go to begin my sophomore year and I got to take these ridiculous court classes, regardless of what I want to study. And so here I am. Sophomore year, first starting, first semester, sophomore year, art history. The (laughs) professor, David Roseanne, who ended up becoming the chairman of the Department of Art History at Columbia, which is like the greatest art history department in the country. I didn't know this. All I know is I'm stuck in this class. So I have to take this class. So I go there the first day, 35 kids in the class, whatever, nice small class. And then there's the professor. And the very first day I come in, I got my knapsack. I put it down and... He puts out the lights, which is you know, kind of cool, I guess, and he puts up a slide. But before he shuts the lights up, before he puts the slide up, he turns to the class and says, "Oh, by the way, I hope none of you are pre-med because I don't give A's." like, you know, I'm going, "Uh-oh. Oh my god. This is I'm not here to learn anything. I'm here to get into medical school, and I'm wasting these for you because this is what the deal is. I would love to be like a plumber. You're an apprentice for 10 years, then you become a plumber. That's what I – just hang out with an orthopedic surgeon for 10 years. No, but that does not how it works. I have to take these ridiculous classes that have no relevance to being a doctor. And you need an A. And I need to get an A. (laughs) Compared to these guys who already took an AP class. So anyway, this is what you're <laughs> up against. This is an impossible dream, right? Didn't they have that, They're, to dream the impossible dream? This is an impossible dream. So he says, and I don't give A's. And I'm going, i got to get out of this. i got to right. transfer, whatever that is. I literally start putting my my notebook into my knapsack. He shuts the lights off, and he puts up the first slide as I'm putting my books away because i got to transfer out of the class. It's a painting by Renoir. And he says, "Now I want you all to see in the corner of this painting the visual noise he's put into this painting." And I remember sitting there going, "As I'm putting my books into the knapsack, visual noise in Faraco, you get arrested if you put those two words together. You're not allowed. <laughs> visual, you see; noise, you hear. You get, you, get, you can't put the, this together. The police are coming. The police are coming. Visual noise, and now on my right shoulder." A little man appears, a devil. And on my left shoulder, a little man appears, the angel. The devil starts talking in my right ear. You got to get out of here. He doesn't give A's. You need to get an A no matter what the class is. You right. already got B's the whole first year. You ain't getting into medical school. Right. It, it, there's no purpose of being a pre-med unless you get the med. The pre-part don't count. You ain't <laughs> doing do anything with a pre-part, right? Pre-life. Right. So then the angel starts speaking to me. Did you hear what he said? He put two words together. That you've never heard before together, Robbie. This is the smartest man you have ever met in your life. You're here to learn something, idiot. You need an education. That's what you're here for. So you won't get an A. You'll get a B. You'll figure it out later. You gotta trust it, just like Steve yeah, Jobs says. Wow. You gotta trust that the end will be okay. Yeah. I didn't know from Steve Jobs then, but but that's what he said at that Stanford commencement speech. You should listen mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, it's a good one. And that's the voice I had. Probably too late to get out of the class anyway. You need to stay. I put my pencil down. I put the books down. And I made this executive decision to stay. This man was so hard and so intense and so smart. You know, so the final exam is three hours. Blue books. Remember the blue books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Blue books. The final exam he put up. Three hours. One question. Oh, boy. A painting by, you should look this up, Pablo Picasso. It's called Three Musicians. It's a painting that Picasso did of African masks holding Cubist instruments. But instead of their faces, they're African masks. He puts up that painting. And then he puts up another painting, Madame Carpentier and Her Children by Renoir. This beautiful woman sitting on a, on a sofa with her kids as a portrait. And he goes, compare and contrast these two paintings. Blue books, three hours. Wow. One question. Wow. And you got, I mean, well, this guy is the hardest-ass guy you've ever met. Right. And I looked wow. at the painting. I looked like, okay. And I opened up the blue book, and I started. In Pablo Picasso's painting, Three Musicians, the wall behind the musician, musicians is brown. If you look carefully at those three masks where they're holding the instruments, Picasso did not paint the pupil of their eyes. What did he paint? The brown wall that's behind them. In other words, when you walk into a room and three people are playing music, do you really care what Bruce Springsteen looks like? Do you really care of the identity the musician? No, they're playing something for your ears, not your eyes. Madame Carpentier is paying Renoir a boatload of money for her portrait. And she better look prettier than she really even is. But you better be able to look at that painting and pick that lady out of a crowd in Paris based on that painting. That better be better than a photograph of her. And so I'm (coughs) saying identity. Picasso's showing you there's no need for it. Renoir's showing you it's all about. It. And I start writing,
0: and wow. writing, and I'm writing, and I'm writing and I'm
1: writing and writing. And I get my grade back, and I get my blue books back, and he writes on it A.
0: Wow, wow. And now,
1: now I go for my meeting because I'm a sophomore, first year. I have to declare a major. Yeah. I get my bar mitzvah suit on because I only have one. <laughs> And I'm in this crowded lobby waiting for my meeting with my advisor at Columbia. Steve Singer was his name. I bang on the door. I go in, have a seat. And he's got like a million kids to to talk to. So he don't have time for his chewing gum. You know, he could care less. Okay, kid. uh, You're pre-med. Okay. What's the deal? I mean, I'm your advisor. You got to major in biology, biochemistry, chemistry. It's got to be in the sciences. Okay. You understand that? I'm your advisor. That's what you have to do. I go... You know, I just took this class. It was awesome. It was the greatest thing I ever did. And I'd love to study it more and major. It was in art history. He looks at me goes, son, I'm your advisor. You do that, you'll never get into medical school. It's suicide. And I remember sitting there going, great. Here's another guy I'm not going to listen to in my life. <laughs> and then I went and took classes in Michelangelo, in... Um, Art of the American Southwest about, I can, I can tell you which tribe made which rug. It was amazing. You know, they, uh, there were three people in the class. The head of the Museum of the Southwest in Manhattan and a, and a lady named Pocahontas. I mean, this was in my Great. class. This is who I was taking yeah. the class with. It was amazing. But then my senior year was coming, and I really missed the man who changed my life, David Roseanne. And I remember my time at Princeton when I went on my interview where they told me all about, if you come to Princeton— What makes us different is you have to write a thesis as an undergrad. You have to do like a PhD thesis, even though you're an undergrad. It was like, oh, my God. And one guy had done one about how to make an atomic bomb. And he got expelled from Princeton. I remember hearing about that because he actually told terrorists how you can make an atomic bomb. It was crazy. But it was always in my head. So I remember realizing time is running out. I'm going to be graduating and I miss being with this man who changed my life. So I remember going to his office. The, the original class. David the, Roseanne, the, yeah. my my junior. I said, you know, I'm going to be, I've only, I'm only here one more year, but you're not teaching. You're on sabbatical. You're this. And he looked at me in his office and he said, if you want, Robert, you can do a senior thesis with me. I said, this is in Princeton. He goes, I'm the chairman of the Department of Art History. I can do whatever I want. So you did that. He looks at me, he goes, what are you interested in? I said, I want to use my hands and I want to be in medicine. So I want to be a surgeon. But because of you, I love art. Wow. He looks at me and he goes, there was a book written in 1543 by Vesalius. Because up until then, doctors used a textbook written by Galen, Greek, 2,000 years ago. But, it, but they dissected monkeys, animals. They never dissected humans. It was not until 1543 that Vesalius, for the first time, dissected humans. In fact, he discovered the diaphragm muscle because he discovered, and he went on and he goes, but his his textbook, his anatomy textbook was illustrated by a Renaissance artist. Robert, you should study for your thesis the Fabricus by Vesalius from 1543. So I go every week to the New York Academy of Medicine, to their rare book room, uh, took the subway. And every week I'd spend hours studying this book from 1543. I'll never forget this. I've got like, you know, 20 books on this day, And I would go there every week, my senior year. One day i go up to the librarian and I said to her, you know, there's a reference for this particular book. But she goes, you know, I've noticed you've been coming here every week for like three months. What are you doing? <laughs> I said, "This," and I tell her, the thesis. for, And, you know, I'm trying to get at this book to understand it from an art historical standpoint, from a medical standpoint. You know, and she looks at me, she goes, would you like to see the original? I said, mm. original? There's no, there's only six copies original in the world that remain. Two are in the Vatican. One's in, you know, the, she goes, I think we have one in the vault. Mm. I looked at her I go. Are you kidding me? Let me talk to the head librarian and see if we can take it out of the vault for you to see and use. So she makes arrangements. And I'll never forget, I go one day. The book is gigantic. They bring it out. And you got to realize, I know this book backwards and forwards because right, right. I've been studying it. Yeah. But I now have the original. Yeah. So I start turning the pages. From 1543, I, turn, I get to page 100. So the, so there would be a drawing. On one page and then in Greek and Latin the description of and as he took layers of the skin and the muscle to get deeper into the body, to the organs. That's what the pages were. Page one hundred, the right side of the page, it was not Greek and Latin. It was Hebrew, which I could read. And I like, oh my God, it was amazing. Anyway, I majored in art history.
0: Yeah.
1: My advisor's voice in my head is suicide. Yeah. You're yeah, never getting right. into anything. Right. Now I go and apply.
0: And so the whole time you say, you stayed on this path that right. you're going to stay into medicine. Into okay. medicine.
1: So now I take the MCATs. I'm with all my friends who've all majored in biology yeah. and chemistry and all the rest of it. And I take the big risk and I apply. Miraculously, now I get an interview. Vanderbilt, Columbia, University of Miami, Buffalo. Coldest day of my life, Erie County <laughs> Medical Center. Oh, my God. But anyway, I remember sitting there in these interviews and they would they'd look at me to go, wait a minute. You're an art history major from Columbia. Yeah, right. Right. I've never seen that before. <clears throat> and I'm going, oh, God, here we go again. I'm hearing that voice, you know, the stupidest thing you could do.
0: Were you worried and, at all, though? Were you concerned at all? No, I didn't. No.
1: I okay. I, I knew I was I was going to make my own path. Yeah, I didn't want to be on the B team. Yeah. Whatever that meant. I didn't know what the A team was cuz I didn't live the A, but I but I knew I didn't want to be on the B team. But
0: even the people that were in the A team, you know, from Columbia, yeah. that de- is telling you you got to stay, you right. got to do chemistry, you got to right. do biology, you got to do all this and they know what the A team is and they're telling you that's the path for the A team, but something's telling you uh I'm going to get to the A team. 18 my own way. So we'll, we'll, how's that I working out? I loved it
1: so much. Yeah. I love the world of art so much because it's so arbitrary.
0: Okay, so you go into it's these not, interviews.
1: I go in the interviews. And a guy, I mean, I remember one of them, he looked at me, he goes, art is like you. And then he sees, you know, I took all these classes, like one in Michelangelo. And he would say to me, okay, tell me something about Michelangelo. Really? Okay, you want to know? And I would tell him, You know, when David was unveiled, the head of the city of Florence realized the acclaim the artist was getting. And so in front of everybody, while it was being unveiled, the bishop looked at the governor and said, isn't this beautiful? But the governor's jealous that all these people are, excuse me, wowed by this artist. So what does he say? This is in a letter Michelangelo wrote wrote to his father. The governor looks at the bishop and says, actually, I don't think it's that great. In fact, I think the nose is too big. Okay, you see that. Are you out of your mind? Yeah. But this is like he's like, you know, a politician. We all know what they're like. They're narcissistic, jealous. He actually said that to the bishop. I actually don't think it's that great. I think the nose is too big. The bishop looks at Michelangelo, goes, hey, buddy, it's really great. We all love it. But we got a problem because this guy's paying for it. And if he says the nose is too big, you have to fix it. And guess what? You have to fix it right now. Okay? This is a story from 500 years ago. He writes to his father. So when you sculpt, he used to wear uh, an apron, like a fanny pack in Mm -hmm. front. Your hammer, your chisel is there. And as you work, Mm -hmm. dust gets all over you and fragments of the marble get everywhere, including in here. So he writes to his father. So in front of everybody, the unveiling. The whole crowd is there. The dais is there. All the big... Father, he writes, I climbed up the scaffold. I got to the face of David. With my right hand, I took out my hammer. With my left hand, I went to pick up my chisel from my apron. But I scooped some dust in my hand as I did it. And I stood in front of David with the chisel and the dust in my hand, hidden, and the hammer... And he says, and father, I hit the chisel. And as I hit the chisel, I let go of some of the dust. Oh. He said, and then I looked down and said, is it better now? Oh, wow. And the governor said, thumbs up. Oh. He said, but father, my chisel never touched the stone. <laughs> it's
0: like, to right. You. So you're so telling that story to, the, telling to the story. Yeah, that
1: was <laughs> like mesmerizing you and all of your listeners with this story. Yeah. The guy looks at me and goes, OK, here's the deal. I know I'm not supposed to do this. But if you want to come to this medical school, I'm going to say that you should come. And when it happened when Vanderbilt built it, so in that, in summary, I got into every single medical school I applied to.
0: But you ended up going to Columbia. At Columbia. Stuff yes. with Columbia. Okay, so let's let's go. Now you're uh, How am now, I doing by the way? Now, you amazing. You're okay, amazing. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're you know, um What's not to love? I mean, there's so much to talk about. So, but I want to put together, because now I've heard the background, the story of tons of questions for you. One is about your dad, his response to all of this. I'm going to ask you two questions because I don't want to forget what I'm going to ask you because I, I know you're going to have a great story about your dad. The other one is you put together art and medicine and carpentry and You've got your own patents now. It's like you went and you created. and yes. my my question to you is, would you have been able to create without that art history background?